real news. Welcome everyone to the Tori Sess Show. I'm your host, Tori. So today is the 5th of February, 2020, and I'm going to jump right into Christopher Ray's testimony. Let's get this going. The House Committee on the Judiciary will come to order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare recesses of the committee at any time. We welcome everyone to this morning's hearing and oversight of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I will now recognize myself for an opening statement. Thank you, Director Ray, for being here. Although we have a great deal of ground to cover today, nearly every topic we discuss will be linked to two questions. How is the FBI working to address some of the most serious threats to our nation? And when it falls short, how is the Bureau working to correct its course and live up to our ideals? The FBI is filled with brave, devoted public servants who work hard to keep us safe from threats, both domestic and foreign. But it is clear that more work needs to be done to shore up public confidence in the Bureau. The FBI's jurisdiction is broad. Among other critical matters, the FBI is responsible for election security, criminal and counterterrorism investigations, our fight against domestic terrorism, and oversight of our public servants. I'd like to talk about each of these in a bit more detail. First, we are heading toward the 2020 elections. There is nothing more important than ensuring that each and every American has confidence in the integrity of his or her vote. As you have warned us, foreign attacks in our elections continue to this day. You recently stated, quote, Russia represents the most significant threat to the election cycle itself, close quote. And other nation states, including China and Iran, may have an interest in interfering in our next election, too. We must be unified in our, in our fight against anyone who tries to undermine the very foundations of our democracy. Our priority should be preventing and deterring any of our adversaries from attacking us ever again. And when attacks do happen, we must respond swiftly. Our democracy depends on it. Now, some have tried to deflect the attention, as you know, some have tried to deflect the attention from the clear evidence of Russia's attack in 2016 because it does not suit them politically. In a recent interview, Director Ray, you confirmed that these alternative theories have no evidentiary support. For example, there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that Ukraine, not Russia, hacked into the Democratic National Committee's computer networks. We know the evidence. We know who our allies are and we know who our adversaries are. Now we must work with our allies and come together as a nation to protect our voting systems from our enemies. As you testify today, I will be listening to how the FBI plans to counter these threats and secure our elections. I will also be listening for your plans to counter attempts to undermine the integrity of our elections from within. I am deeply concerned that every time the interagency team tasked with securing our elections takes a significant step forward, President Trump undercuts that progress with a statement or a tweet that spreads misinformation or directly invites our adversaries, other nations, to meddle in our, in our elections. You may not be able to control the content of the president's Twitter account, but our government has an obligation to be unified in protecting every American's right to vote from anyone who threatens to undermine that right. Second, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is a tool entrusted to the government to protect our country. This committee's job is to make certain that the use of that tool complies with the law and with our commitment to privacy and civil liberties. 
On December 9th of last year, the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General released a report entitled Review of Four FISA Applications and Other Aspects of the FBI's Crossfire Hurricane Investigation. The Inspector General found deep and systemic problems with how the FBI has used the FISA Act to target United States citizens. Uh, I will remind you that this committee expressed concerns along those lines for the last three or four years. The report found, quote, basic fundamental and serious errors in the process designed to ensure the factual accuracy of information presented to the court. In so doing, uh, the Bureau, quote, fell short of what is rightfully expected from a premier law enforcement agency entrusted with such an intrusive surveillance tool. Close quote. Simply put, the FBI uh, failed in its responsibilities with respect to FISA. And that requires action. Congress must address these systemic failures if we are to leave such a powerful tool into the hands of the FBI. I am encouraged, Director Ray, that you have volunteered to make dozens of important changes to address the findings of the Inspector General. But a recent submission by a court-appointed amicus suggests that new procedures, new checklists, and new training modules may not be enough to address the problem. The committee has a responsibility to renew certain aspects of FISA in the coming weeks. Having read the report, I feel strongly that we must address uh, these problems in that legislation without delay. I want to thank the gentleman from Wisconsin, Mr. Sensenbrenner, among others, for encouraging us to wait until after the Inspector General released his report to take up this matter. Now, of course, some have suggested that the report provides evidence of a far-reaching conspiracy to remove the president. As you know, that is utter nonsense. The Inspector General, and I'm quoting, quote, did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the decisions to open uh, the in individual investigations, close quote. At bottom, the report documents important issues that affect the sacred liberties of American citizens. I hope that we can focus on those substantive issues where we are bound to find common ground and not derail our conversation with long debunked conspiracy theories by the president or any of his minions. Third, we must address the sad and frightening resurgence of white supremacy and other forms of nativist extremism that plagues our country. The FBI's most recent hate crime statistics are a testament to the rise of anti-Semitic violence. 2018 marked the deadliest year of anti-Semitic attacks in American history. Hate crimes attacks against LGBT, indivi LGBT individuals and Latinos were also markedly up in 2018. These grave statistics demand a swift and immediate response starting with the FBI's making concerted efforts to improve hate crime statistics reporting. Recent state and federal prosecutions have shown that white supremacist groups are increasingly coordinating their messaging beyond our borders. Through social media, white supremacists are spreading their, hate, their message of hate, inspiring attacks both at home and abroad. This growing problem hits close to home. The Anti-Defamation League's Order of Anti-Semitic Incidents reported more than 1,800 acts in 2018, one of the highest totals since it began tracking such incidents 40 years ago. In New York City alone, the NYPD, New York Police Department, reported more anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic incidents in 2019 than all other hate crimes put together. So as you testified today, Director Ray, I will be listening for how the FBI is working to address this threat. And in particular, whether the Bureau has properly prioritized white supremacy and similar forms of domestic terrorism over other threats that pose far less immediate risk to our nation. Concrete steps are needed now to address the rising tide of hate. Finally, the FBI's investigations are meant to be independent from political influence. That is critical, especially as it relates to your investigations of public servants. 
And to that end, Director Ray, I expect that you will take a moment to provide the American public with an explanation for the of, the, of the Bureau's role in Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court last year. To be clear, I have no intention of relitigating the confirmation process here. But there remains a great deal of mistrust and uncertainty around the FBI's supplemental background check of Justice Kavanaugh during the last few days of that confirmation. The country needs a better understanding of that process. For example, I hope to hear what it means for the Bureau to take direction from a client agency, in this case the White House, when it conducts a background check of this nature. If that process is as strictly curtailed as I believe it to be, then the country can at the very least approach the next high-profile confirmation with its eyes open. As you are about to see, Director Ray, many of our members on both sides of the aisle feel quite passionately about these and other issues. My hope is that we will enter these discussions with the same goals, fulfilling our mandate, fulfilling our duty to uphold our country's values, providing oversight of this agency, ensuring increased transparency for the American people, and working towards solutions that are best for all of us as a nation. We have great respect for the manner in which you have led the FBI these past years, and even greater respect for the men and women of the Bureau. I look forward to your testimony. I now recognize the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Collins, for his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. It is uh, good to be back in this room. It's been a while. And it's also good to see a former chairman here, Mr. Uh, Goodlad, is here with us, who has actually been a part of many of these investigations before, and it's good to see him. Uh, it does appear, though, we have a new year. We have the first time back in this room, but it seems things have never changed in this committee. And one of the things that I've noticed here is it's interesting that we like to uh, talk about the Inspector General's report, but my chairman could have actually called the Inspector General to sit where you are, Mr. Ray, but we chose not to. We would rather talk about that process. We'd rather talk about his report. Uh, it's interesting to me, though, the one thing the chairman didn't say was is the Inspector General said no one should feel vindicated by this report. I think it's interesting that we... Uh, again, like to gloss over problems and, and discuss that without actually bringing witnesses here to do that. But as our committee showed in December, we're not about witnesses, we're about rubber stamps. And that's exactly what happened here. So the problem I have is also we're not going to relitigate issues. I love what was said here in this issue of that we're not going to relitigate the hearings of the Supreme Court justice. But it's okay to not relitigate it by actually talking about it, but actually to take a shot at it in the opening statement seems to be okay. Again, we've not changed a whole lot here. It's also interesting that we'll bring up voting systems and election stuff, which we've talked about a little bit in this committee, but when it comes to the foreign side of it, we've ignored that. We've talked about moving more toward a federalizing of our elections. This is what we've done in this hearing. This is what we've done here. That's just from the opening statement. I'll get to you now, Mr. Ray, and I appreciate it for you being here. You know, you've led the FBI during turbulent times, unparalleled, really, by any other uh, director. You've stepped in at a time, you know, probably as difficult uh, as has been a part. Your agency is respected for its tireless effort to keep Americans safe from all manners of threats. And as you know, I have a great deal of affection for the men and women of law enforcement. But as outlined in the Inspector General's report, which again, as I shared with you earlier, it would have been nice to have had him here. This is the first opportunity for to discuss that, so it'll be a lot of this discussion today. The Bureau engaged in some of the most shocking surveillance abuse in history. Specifically, the FBI improperly surveilled a U.S. citizen who had been affiliated with then-presidential candidate Trump. The basis for this electronic surveillance, which is among the most intrusive investigation the FBI employs, was predicated on opposition research paid for by Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee and procured by foreign, former foreign intelligence officers using Russian sources as his basis for reporting. 
To make matters worse, Republicans investigating events surrounding the 2016 election learned an FBI attorney falsified evidence in order to renew a surveillance, surveillance against Carter Page, a law-abiding U.S. citizen and Naval Academy graduate. This was confirmed by the Horowitz report. In fact, I had hoped we would, uh, had had him here before you. We did not. We had wrote to the chairman to have this happen. It never happened. Mr. Director, I understand perfectly well that this abuse did not occur on your watch, and I want to make that fully clear to every question that is made today. However, I think you would agree that it's on, on your shoulders to take responsibility and to address it vigorously. The flaws in this surveillance are too voluminous to break down in one opening statement, but the bottom line is that the FBI failed as an institution to adequately protect the American civil liberties, and the system itself exhibited glaring deficiencies that must be corrected in order to regain confidence of the American people. I want to argue an even larger point, though. Whether one supports or does not support this president, it's undeniable that an unfair, unfounded cloud was cast upon President Trump's administration for the past three years, largely stemming from the abuses committed in some of the intelligence community. Sadly, we have seen this before. In 1970s, the church and pike committees were formed to safeguard American citizens against the overwhelming powers of the government. For example, Robert Kennedy spying on Martin Luther King Jr. and the unconstitutional surveillance of anti-war and other political protesters. These actions sparked the advent of a law intended to protect U.S. citizens, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, as well as the creation of the special court to oversee implementation of the new and new legal restrictions on surveillance. We have lived with this surveillance regime since the 1970s and has had undoubtedly protected attacks on the homeland. I'm confident it has saved American lives. However, recent events show that there's also substantial holes in the law that need patching or possibly wholesale change. Prior to March 15th, our committee and this Congress must take critical decisions about reauthorization of specific provisions of FISA. This is a matter of vital importance because this law is primarily about fighting terrorists, but it is also a tall order. Make no mistake, while I believe that we must reauthorize several provisions, such as collection of business records, roving wiretaps, lone wolf authority, the reauthorization of these specific provisions in no way addresses the abuses. And in the matter of the 2016 election, the FBI fell short of what is expected and demanded from our law enforcement intelligence institutions. Plainly, the improper spying of an American citizen can never happen again. That is the great iron. Address abuses and protect American civil liberties and was abused for political purposes for the violations of those liberties. Director Ray, you have proposed solutions, and I'm glad to see that. I'm proud of the work that you have done. Though, I worry about some of those are going to fall short, and that's why we're here today. In substance, you have hit on necessary reforms to training and documentation, but there also must be a change, a corresponding change to cultural attitude and the threat of swift and certain disciplinary measures. I am concerned words like omission and misstatements downplay the intentional conduct and bias exhibited by central players involved in the Carter Page surveillance and the conduct of the investigative measures taken against other affiliated with President Trump. From my vantage point, this is not a time to parse words or attempt to sugarcoat the fact that public servants abuse their positions in our intelligence agencies for political purpose. Of course, the FBI keeps us safe, and you have personally and admirably served the American people for many years in law enforcement. I appreciate your Georgia connection and your Georgia family roots. You have served us well in my district of the Northern District of Georgia as a prosecutor, and the men and women of the FBI have dedicated their lives to protecting the American people from external and internal threats. As a son of a trooper and one who also serves, I have grown to respect institutions and been a part of those whose goal is protecting our common defense. Your leadership over the FBI is a hefty responsibility. These times call for leadership in which reignites the discipline required to operate fairly and effectively. I hope you bring to that forefront of your mind as you consider the efforts to prevent future abuses by our intelligence community. 
Now, there's a lot of things I'd love to talk about today, and I think both sides would. Unfortunately, we're going to be clouded by the fact that you're the first real oversight of the Department of Justice uh, that we've had under this majority. And we have not had the Horowitz report here. We've not had other things here because the majority chose not to. When we look at this, though, the men and women of the FBI are some of the most valuable assets we have, and their dedication should never be questioned. There are some bad actors, and bad actors need to be called out. Bad actors need to be removed. But those vast majority of good actors need to be applauded, and their families need to be thanked for what they do. And I want to thank you, Director Ray, for this. I look forward to this hearing as we continue to do our proper job of oversight as we move forward uh, with this. I thank you for being here and look forward to talking with you more. I yield back. I thank the gentleman. Before we continue, I want to note the presence of the former chairman of this committee, and my good friend, uh, Bob Goodlatte. And it's good to see you in this, uh, in, in, in this room again. I just want to remind the ranking member that uh, um, um, we, this is not our first att attempt at oversight of the Justice Department. In fact, we invited uh, uh, the Attorney General, Mr. Barr, here last year. He refused to come. We subpoenaed him. He refused to obey our subpoena. Um, so we've gone to considerable lengths for oversight of the Justice Department. I'm glad Mr. Ray is here today. I will now introduce today's witness. Christopher Ray became the eighth director of the FBI in August 2017. Before becoming director, Mr. Ray served in various roles at the Department of Justice, including assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia and principal associate deputy attorney general. In 2003, Mr. Ray was nominated by President George Bush to be the assistant attorney general for the Department of Justice's criminal division. Before working in law enforcement, Mr. Ray clerked for Judge Michael Luddick of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit and worked at the international law firm of King & Spaulding. Mr. Ray received his B.A. from Yale University and his J.D. from Yale Law School. We thank Director Ray for participating in today's hearing. If you'd please rise, I'll begin by swearing you in. Do you swear or affirm, under penalty of perjury, that the testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and beliefs to help you guide? Thank you. Let the record show the witness is answered in the affirmative. Please note that your written testimony will be entered into the record in its entirety. Accordingly, I ask that you summarize your testimony in five minutes. To help you stay within that time, there's a timing light on your table. From green to yellow, you have one minute to conclude your testimony. When the light turns red, it signals your five minutes have expired. Uh, Director Ray, you may begin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Collins, members of the committee. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today to discuss how the men and women of the FBI are keeping us all safe from an ever-growing array of threats. In the two years since I became the FBI director, I've visited all 56 of our field offices around the country and met with state and local law enforcement partners from all 50 states, every state represented by this committee. I've met with all of our headquarters divisions, with scores of our foreign law enforcement partners and intelligence community partners, leaders of small businesses, big businesses, community leaders, with prosecutors, judges, and with crime victims and their families. And I know up close that the threats are real and challenging and that the 37,000 men and women of the FBI are working around the clock to combat them. As this committee is well aware, we face a diverse and increasingly dangerous terrorism threat. We continue to worry about international terrorism by groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS, but now 
the threat from loan actors already here in the U.S. and inspired by those groups, the homegrown violent extremists, that threat is even more acute. At the same time, we are particularly focused on domestic terrorism, especially racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. Not only is the terror threat diverse, it's unrelenting. In the last several months alone, just to name a few important examples, our joint terrorism task forces have foiled synagogue bombings in Colorado and Nevada, arrested eight members of the violent extremist group called The Base across four different states, arrested a guy down in Miami for planning ISIS-associated acts of violence. I could go on. We're also facing the growing and increasingly blended threats of cyber intrusions and state-sponsored economic espionage. And we're worried about the threat of malign foreign influence, including the security of our elections, a topic, of course, on everyone's mind this year. We know that our adversaries are actively trying to influence national policy, public opinion, and our elections. So together with our close partners in the intelligence community, at DHS, state governments, and elsewhere, the FBI remains laser-focused on protecting our democracy as we move through this election year. As if that weren't enough, we face ruthless gangs threatening our neighborhoods and our schools, the scourges of opioid trafficking and abuse, human trafficking, crimes against children. The list of threats that we face is not getting any shorter, and each of those threats is evolving in scale, in impact, in complexity, and agility. What's more, hanging over all of them are broader challenges like maintaining lawful access to increasingly encrypted electronic evidence that we actually need to find, stop, and prosecute criminals. To tackle these threats, we're relying on our deep well of expertise, intelligence, and partnerships. But at the same time, we're making some important changes to the way we operate at the FBI. As both you, Mr. Chairman, and Ranking Member Collins have noted, in December, the Inspector General's Office released its report on the 2016 Crossfire Hurricane investigation and certain related FISA applications. The failures highlighted in that report are unacceptable, period. They don't reflect who the FBI is as an institution, and they cannot be repeated. The FBI has embraced every last one of the Inspector General's recommendations, but we're also making a number of improvements above and beyond those recommended by the Inspector General. I've already ordered more than 40 corrective actions, including significant modifications to our FISA policies and procedures. We're training every employee with FISA responsibilities on those new processes. And I will tell this committee that I see every day how indispensable our FISA authorities are to protecting the American people. But I also recognize that these tools are powerful and intrusive. So it is our responsibility as public servants to honor our duty of candor to the FISA court when seeking to use our authorities and to exercise those powers when approved by the court in trust, carefully and responsibly. Since taking on the leadership of the FBI in August of 2017, I have spoken to every FBI field office and every headquarters component in the Bureau about the importance of getting our processes right, about operating at all times by the book. I've installed a new leadership team helping me drive home that insistence on doing the right thing the right way 
every time, and the need to hold ourselves accountable when we fall short of that mark. That's what I think the American people expect. That's what I think the American people deserve. Now, I may not have been in this job during the problems described in the IG's report, but I'm here now, and my leadership team and I are fiercely focused on preventing these kinds of failures from happening again. At the end of the day, while this kind of scrutiny can be difficult and even painful, I am confident that the FBI will emerge an even better and stronger organization. I also want to note, as Ranking Member Collins pointed out, that our crucial USA Freedom Act authorities are expiring in March, including, in particular, I would call out the roving wiretap, business records, and lone wolf provisions. None of those authorities were in any way at issue in the IG's report, and I would urge Congress to permanently reauthorize them. They are vital to our relentless efforts to keep something like 325 million American people safe. The American people can be confident that the FBI will never stop working to safeguard our country against a wider than ever a range of criminal and national security threats and confident that we're going to be doing the right thing in the right way. So I want to thank this committee for your continued support of the Bureau. and I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you. Uh, I'll now begin um, the questions by recognizing myself. Um, Mr. Chairman, uh, Director, uh, you referred to the uh, IG report, and Mr. Collins and I both referred to it. Um, and that, that uh, report found considerable uh, mistakes and uh, considerable bad practices in the, in the incident reviewed in, the, in those FISA warrant uh, applications, correct? Correct. Okay. And uh, you, you understand that, and you're going to do everything you can to correct that. I think we all know that. Um, is it correct that that, that uh, report also found that there was no evidence whatsoever that the mistakes that the FBI made or that the people in the FBI made had any uh, political motive uh, against the president or anyone else? Well, uh, Mr. Chairman, I would just refer you to, to the report itself. Uh, obviously, the inspector general put a lot of hard work uh, into that uh, investigation, I think a million something documents, 170 interviews, very thorough, very independent, 500 pages reports, and so I would isn't it correct prefer to rely on his description of what he found. He made some very specific findings on that, both about what he found and, as Mr. Chairman, as to what he did not find. Okay. Um, now, recent reporting suggests that the president plans to seek payback against those individuals he believes crossed him during the impeachment proceedings. I'm sorry to have to ask, has the president, the attorney general, or any other administration official asked the FBI to open an investigation into Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, John Bolton, or any member of Congress? <laughs> Mr. Chairman, I have assured the Congress, and I can assure the Congress today, that the FBI will only open investigations based on the facts and the law and proper predication. I understand that. Uh, and I assume that it is correct that neither the President, the Attorney General, uh, or any other administration official has asked the FBI to open improper political investigations. And no one has asked me to open an investigation based on anything other than the facts, the law, and proper predication. Thank you. Um, 
What reporting mechanisms are available for FBI officials and employees to report concerns if they believe the agency or they are being asked to pursue politically motivated investigations? Well, there are a number of uh, avenues that uh, an employee who is troubled by, you know, any number of things. There are whistleblower provisions. Uh, they have the ability to go up their supervisory chain. Uh, we have a number of mechanisms independent of their supervisory chain inside the organization. Uh, and then under certain circumstances, there are, of course, reporting mechanisms, I think, even to Congress. Okay, you guys, so we heard the intros, the outros, the everything, and instead of me interrupting and saying, wait, before Nadler gets, I thought it would be best that if you guys heard the whole thing, and it's really, really important you hear it, because E was asking in fishing, because they know they're in trouble, so just to clarify, he wanted Ray on the record to say that, oh, yeah, you know, you found all these mistakes and bad practices in the FISA warrant, but you're doing everything to fix it, right? Yeah, shoot, totally. I'm like retraining everyone for something that's, you know, a no-brainer, but okay. So, yeah, so uh, Mr. Ray, you know, you see mistakes were made, but there wasn't any political motivation against the president of the United States or someone else. Right. I mean, that's what the IG report said. And he's like, listen, man, uh, so you need to refer to the IG report because we all know that the IG report said, yes, it was politically motivated. And he was like, uh, so Ray, instead of answering the question and saying, uh, yeah, uh, he did it. He was like, totally thorough, you know. I, re I tell you to refer to the report and find it there. And he's like, all right. And I'm really sorry to like say this to you, but you know, it seems like the president of the United States is going to be seeking retribution and payback to people who crossed him in the impeachment proceedings. And so what I'm asking you is to tell me, has anyone asked the FBI to open up any investigation into Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Bolton, or any members of Congress? And, um, you know, he's like, uh, so rest assured that, you know, and Congress should be rest assured that the FBI only opens investigations on, you know, actually proper predication. And if there's actually laws involved, you know, because they're law enforcement, right, guys? And and he's like, so the president or the attorney general didn't ask you to open up a improper investigation. He's like, we only pursue facts of law. So this was Ray telling him uh, we only open investigations um, with proper predication and if there's actual laws broken. So that is telling him I can't tell you there's ongoing investigations. So he was like, oh, OK. So they haven't asked you to open an improper investigation. He goes, no, nope, we only go by. So so it wasn't like a politically motivated. He's got like facts. And this is this is how they talk. I'm I'm explaining this to you. This is how they talk to each other in plain sight. He's like, so, Ray. All right. So they opened up investigations. Let me just confirm that I understood what you said. So the question being posed, which is so the president of the United States or the attorney general didn't ask you to open improper investigations. He's like, uh, no, we only uh, investigate things with the facts of the law, which was reinforcing. Yes, we are investigating. Yes, it's happening. So now they have this in there. And, you know, now he's saying, well, if someone who's in the FBI, this was a follow up feels that it's politically motivated or they feel pressured 
or politically something, something, you know, and they're working on an investigation and they feel that the investigation is motivated by politics. Um, you know, who do they tell? And he's like, oh, we have whistleblower provision, supervisory change, some independent stuff. So this is like, hey, so if we find someone that thinks maybe it could be politically motivated, can we get them to whistleblow? So keep an eye out for the next round of whistleblowing because, you know, they believe, oh, retribution. Now, isn't it interesting how we have um, Christopher Ray testifying while we're getting the final vote so nobody pays attention? This is more important than the final vote. And a lot of you will say, Tori, are you insane? There's no way that's more important than the final vote. Kind of is. Because a final vote is a vote on a sham. You know, we already know outcomes that are coming. That's the way it is. And that's the way it's going to be. So, you know, we've got a lot of other things going on. We've got uh, the um, the whole, you know thing of how it's being put out. Uh, we have the whole thing of how it's being um, played out. You know, yeah, you know what? Uh, think. Think, think, think. How is it? I mean, come on, we're going down super rabbit holes right now. We've got tons going on. Super rabbit holes, super, super, super duper stuff going around right now. And this is pretty exciting. Okay. We've got the Flynn. We've got the testimony from Ray. Now you all know that we have criminal investigations pending at the FBI. They're all going down and they've got Nadler asking the questions. And in the meantime, we still have, uh, you know, all these clowns sitting there and telling us, you know... (laughs) While they cry, what's right and what's wrong. And so thinking about that, it gave me, it reminded me of a song. A really old song with babies and someone living in their own reality of just being stubborn and throwing something away. So I thought I could play this. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies too, very old, with puppets. And, you know, it's David Bowie, so who doesn't like him, right? That's Pelosi crying in the middle of the baby. Remember this song? So fitting right now. Jump, 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 jump,
9 hours and 23 minutes, you'll be mine. <laughs> that is totally what we saw in Congress. But now it's the magic dance, you guys. It's the magic dance. That's what's going on right now. We are dancing. We are the ones in charge. And they're not happy. There is so much coming right now. <laughs> they know it. They know that the best is yet to come and it's coming. What kind of magic spell? Well, there's so many of us now, so many eyes on you, so many of us that understand how you speak, how you connect. So all these puppets dancing around reminded me of Congress yesterday, reminded me of what they're doing and is reminding me of what they're saying today. Here's some pure insanity um, coming out of the mouth of Kamala Harris. I thought she was busy with this whole Jussie Smollett thing, but apparently she had time to chit chat. Take a listen to her. That what Donald Trump did was wrong are nonetheless going to refuse to hold him accountable. The Senate trial of Donald Trump has been a miscarriage of justice. Donald Trump is going to get away with abusing his position of power for personal gain, abusing his position of power to stop Congress from looking into his misconduct and falsely claiming he's been exonerated. He's going to escape accountability because a majority of senators have decided to let him. They voted repeatedly to block key evidence like witnesses and documents that could have shed light on the full truth. And we must recognize that still in America, there are two systems of justice, one for the powerful and another for everyone else. So let's speak the truth about what our two systems of justice actually mean in the real world. It means that in our country, too many people walk into courthouses and face systemic bias. Systemic bias like pretending to hang yourself, pretending that you were a victim of crime, pretending that someone put a noose around your neck, pretending that your nephew didn't do this, and then going to court and saying, oh, don't hold me accountable even though I got the world up in arms in racism. Because it seems that who are the real racists, you guys? Think about it. Who are the real racists? One of them is talking about it right now. Too often, they lack adequate legal representation, whether they are overworked, underpaid, or both. It means that a young man named Emmett Till was falsely accused and then murdered, but his murderer didn't have to spend a day in jail. It means that four young black men had their lives taken and turned upside down after being falsely accused of a crime in Groveland, Florida. Well, did she feel like that when she was like handing out sentences for marijuana use? Let's just be honest. Was she thinking that? Was she saying that? Was she, oh my gosh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't this, you shouldn't that. Come on. Who's buying what she's selling? Because definitely not me. Okay, guys. That is what we, this is what is happening. This charade is happening, right? Hate on full display right now. 
hate on full display and they're trying to sell you. Sell you what? Sell you what? These people have no conscience. These people have no morals. They don't care about you. They don't care if you are doing better now under Trump than you have been for over 20 years. That your 401ks have gotten fatter. That you have the availability to get a job because there are jobs because we're creating jobs. And that you feel safer. Who doesn't? Now we have Doug Jones coming up to the table where he's going to start virtuosoing this guy's not being reelected for sure because he's reluctant to, uh, what did he say? I am reluctantly convicting him or something like that. So I'm waiting for him to come to the podium to play it rather than just the snippet. You got to listen to the whole song and dance, you guys, so you can understand what they're really telling you. I was sworn in as a United States senator. I took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. Just last month, at the beginning of the impeachment trial, I took a second oath to do fair and impartial justice, according to the same Constitution I swore to protect. As I took the oath and throughout the impeachment trial, I couldn't help but think of my father. As many of you know, I lost my dad over the holiday recess. While so many were arguing over whether or not the Speaker of the House should send articles of impeachment to the Senate, I was struggling with watching him slip away while only occasionally trying to weigh in with my voice to be heard about the need for witnesses in the upcoming impeachment trial. My dad was a great man, a loving husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, who did his best to instill in me the values of right and wrong as I grew up in Fairfield, Alabama. He was also a fierce patriot who loved this country, Although fortunately he was never called on to do so, I firmly believe he would have placed his country even above his family because he knew and understood fully what America and the freedoms and liberties that come with her mean to everyone in this great country and significantly to people around the world. I know he would have put his country before any allegiance to any political party or even to any president. He was on the younger side of that greatest generation who joined the Navy at age 17 to serve our great military. That service and love of country shaped him into the man of principle that he was, instilling in me those same principles. And think of him, his patriotism, his principles, and how he raised me. I am reminded of Robert Kennedy's words that were mentioned in this trial. Few men are willing to brave the disapproval of their fellows, the censure of their colleagues, the wrath of their society. Moral courage is a rarer commodity than bravery in battle or great intelligence. Yet it is the one essential, vital quality for those who seek to change a world that yields most painfully to change. Candidly to my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, I fear that moral courage, country before party, is a rare commodity these days. We can write about it and talk about it in speeches and in the media, but it is harder to put into action when political careers may be on the line. Nowhere is the dilemma more difficult than in an impeachment of the President of the United States. 
very early on in this process, I implored my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, in both houses of Congress, to stay out of their political and partisan corners. Many did, but so many did not. Even the media continually view this entire process through partisan political eyes and how it may or may not affect an election. That is unfortunate. The country deserves better, and we must find a way to move beyond such partisan divides. The solemn oaths that I have taken have been my guides during what has been a difficult time for the country, my state, and for me personally. I did not run for the Senate hoping to participate in the impeachment trial of a duly elected president, but I cannot and will not shrink from my duty to defend the Constitution and to do impartial justice. In keeping with my oath as senator and my oath to do impartial justice, I resolved that throughout this process, I would keep an open mind to consider the evidence without regard to political affiliation and to hear all of the evidence before making a final decision on whether the ch- on either charge against the president. I believe that my votes later today will reflect that commitment. With the eyes of history upon us, I'm acutely aware of the precedents that this impeachment trial will set for future presidencies and Congresses. Unfortunately, I do not believe that those precedents are good ones. I am particularly concerned that we have now set a precedent that the Senate does not have to go forward with witnesses or review documents, even when those witnesses have firsthand information. And the documents would allow us to test not just the credibility of witnesses, uh, but also test the words of counsel on, of both parties. This guy has literally lost his reelection. Okay, Sessions is coming in. It's done. the The bottom line here is the Senate's job is never to investigate. That's the House's job. The only time you have witnesses and documents is when you're going through the trial with the same witnesses and documents that the House had. You don't introduce new stuff halfway through the game. You don't bring new things. You don't bring new witnesses. You don't do things like that because that's not how it's done. This guy's not going to be reelected. We're going to get Sessions back in, trusting Sessions as always. And he just threw away his seat completely. That is where we're at. He threw his seat away. All of these people to convict, convict, convict is, is, is incredible. Like the things that they're coming up with makes no sense. Listen to Rhode Island. There's like five people that live on that island. This guy's not getting reelected either. Impeachment managers and the president's defense team weighing the evidence that was presented to us and being denied the opportunity to see relevant documents and hear from firsthand witnesses. I will vote to find President Trump guilty on both articles of impeachment. I take no pleasure in voting to impeach a president and remove him from office. I wonder what he I has to hide. I agree with those who say impeachment should be rare. Rare. And American voters should decide our elections. Mm-hmm. That is why it's so galling. President Trump blatantly solicited foreign interference in our democratic process. And he did it as a geared up for re-election. 
oh my gosh, does he really believe that Biden is innocent? That Biden knew like we have the crime on screen, which we'll talk about in the next hour. In the next hour, we're going to talk about the State of the Union. We're going to talk about crimes on TV like quid pro quo and destroying federal documentation that's considered part of the record. Uh, you know, those are actual crimes. Let's prosecute these crimes. We need to start prosecuting. And this is where it starts. Let's get this acquittal and the first person that needs to be charged is Nancy Pelosi. That's how it has to happen. So these people are telling you what they want to do, how they're going to do it and why they're impeaching him and why they're not. (laughs) At the end of the day, you guys, he's not going to be impeached. He's going to be acquitted forever, but we're going to have something new come up now with these FBI investigations and criminal investigations that are ongoing that we're seeing expand, expand. You know, Seth Rich, that's not over. We got other people playing the civil suit thing. I saw PBS subpoenaed um, Cassandra Fairbanks and it's like, oh my gosh, good thing I'm on the East Coastish now, right? Because if I wasn't on the Eastish Coastish, I probably would have been served too. Um, so they can just go play footsie with it. That's, that's how it is. They're getting new organizations like PBS. So PBS is suing Cassandra for information. Why? What does PBS have to do with it? Why are they asking for information? What are they doing? How are they doing some made up thing? Cause it's not the Seth rich family because for me, they came to me with the Seth rich family fell flat on their face. For some reason they coaxed Matt couch into like giving everything in his underwear, burying him in litigation. And now we have this again round what four, because there's like, like four different civil suits going around the nation asking for things about Seth Rich. Ah, because we've got criminal investigation. Ah, because we got the Awan brothers. Ah, and that's all coming down. So Nadler's fishing expedition with Christopher Ray was intentional and important. And maybe you should listen just a little bit more on what Nadler said. Let's hop to this quick. Okay. And, and of course, uh, there are provisions, uh, designed to protect the anonymity of whistleblowers so that they can't be retaliated against? Again, it depends on the specific uh, vehicle, but there are a number of provisions that deal with protecting whistleblowers, which I think is important. Now, to switch topics, the FBI's position on encryption is well known. For example, last October, when speaking on Facebook's plans to encrypt its messaging services, you said this would be a, quote, dream come true for predators and child pornographers unquote. That is, if, if they were able to uh, have a, uh, to totally encrypt without a back door, this would be a terrible thing. That's what you said. Uh, I, 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 we don't think we're asking for a back door, but the first no, part no. of what you said is correct. Yes. Okay, fine. Now, there are a lot of people in the federal government who share these views and argue that encryption represents a risk to public safety. But a, an October 15, 2019 letter from the Department of Defense highlights DOD's reliance on conscription, on encryption. Uh, the letter goes on to state, quote, it is imperative that innovative security techniques such as advanced encryption algorithms are constantly maintained and improved to protect DOD information and resources. The department believes maintaining a domestic climate for state-of-the-art security and encryption is critical to the protection of our national security, close quote. I'm curious to understand how the FBI squares its position on encryption and the need to create, uh, to make sure that there are means that will arguably weaken encrypted systems everywhere 
how they square that with the effect it will have beyond the Bureau's investigations, in this case, an apparent impact on the Pentagon's ability to protect their national security. In other words, it seems from the various statements we've seen that the FBI is taking one position and the Department of Defense a totally opposite position. Um, could you comment? I don't even think Nadler knew what he asked, but we're going to get listen to that comment and more right after this short break. Um, Because we have a lot of talk about State of the Union, crimes, and what's coming down. I mean, the best is so yet to come, just like he said. And don't forget, the president made it clear. You cause harm to American citizens. You forfeit your right to life. Uh, I mean, we'd ask McCain, but he's not around to talk about it for now. But (laughs) we'll talk about it after this break. See you in a bit. news welcome everyone to the tory says show welcome back for the second hour so in the first hour i played the um you know opening statements of nadler and collins you know uh testifying before the house judiciary uh ray is testifying where we see nadler on a fishing expedition and where we left it off last was him asking about whistleblower protections and Ray was like, what do you mean anonymity? We protect them so there's no retaliation. I don't know about anonymity, man. So he's kind of saying, oh, so they're going to remain anonymous, right? If someone in the FBI decides that they feel like these criminal investigations are politicized and that they're not fair or legal, that they're protected. And he was like, listen, we provide them as they are. And so, you know, Nadler didn't like that. Then he started to ask questions about where the FBI is on cybersecurity and coding and keeping things ironclad. And does that happen national security like what's going on he didn't even know the question he was asking Nadler seemed confused himself uh, so maybe Ray will tell us what's really going on well uh, first off I would say that I don't think the Department of Defense I haven't read the specific report you're talking about is taking a position on what Facebook should be doing about uh, its messaging platform um, and I would tell this committee uh, that the FBI believes strongly in encryption. We, after all, have a cybersecurity mission, which is one of our top priorities. But I think we also have to have mechanisms that allow lawful access to protect flesh and blood Americans. And right now, even as we speak, Nick. To protect flesh and blood Americans. Nick, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, gets about 18 million. Tips, and I think it's important for Americans to understand this, get about 18 million tips a year related to child exploitation. 18 million. And some vast swath of those come from Facebook. Now, if Facebook moves forward with the plans that they have at the moment, we will be blinded. They will blind themselves. What happened? They will be blinded themselves, just stopped? Those children... Mm -hmm. And those predators will still be out there. 
That will not have changed. What will have changed is that no matter what lawful authority we've been given, that will disappear. And I don't think that's a decision that one company, in that instance Facebook, but it could be any number of other companies, should be making on behalf of the American people. That's a, that's a very well stated um, um, summary of the FBI's well-known position. But the DOD seems to have exactly the opposite position. Um, and you may not know the, F, you know, the DOD, but I'm asking if you do know, uh, these positions seem completely at odds with each other. Well, Ray already told him the Pentagon hasn't taken a position. He hasn't. He's like, well, maybe you don't know the DOD or you may not know what the DOD is doing. I'm asking. Um, and the DOD is not commenting only on Facebook and you're not commenting only on Facebook. So uh, if you know, if you're familiar with the... Uh, with the contradiction here, would you comment on it? Well, I, I, I don't think there's a contradiction between the steps we take to, present, to protect the country's most sensitive national security and defense information uh, and having individual manufacturers design their systems in a way, knowingly, to blind law enforcement all over this okay. country from contact. I have one more topic. There's been a lot of confusion in the public about the Bureau's role in conducting background checks for Senate-confirmed appointments, including judicial nominees. My understanding is that when conducting these background checks, the FBI is restricted to the scope and subject matter requested by the client agency. In the case of Justice Kavanaugh's appointment, I understand that the client agency was the White House, specifically the White House Counsel's Office. So, if, yes or no, if the White House had directed the FBI to interview some witnesses but not others, or if they had told you to complete the process by a certain date, would the FBI have followed that request? The process that exists for background investigations, including supplemental updates to background investigations, is very different from a criminal investigation or a national security investigation. And as you noted, Mr. Chairman, by longstanding practice and process under background investigations, the FBI is what's called the investigative service provider, or the ISP. And we do whatever we do in a background investigation, much less an update to that background investigation, only at the direction or request of the adjudicating agency, which in this case would be the White House. And they set the scope for what we... That's what I'm seeking to get at. They set the scope. Huh. They set the scope. Of course they do. An agency, each agency, depending on the clearance that you're going for, sets the scope of what they want to know. I mean, what kind of bizarre questions are these? Is he trying to get a gotcha moment with Ray? Uh, is this what we're getting at? I mean, not like I like Ray personally because he hasn't come down super hard, but come on, man. Here is uh, another bizarre uh, statement and question from Jeffries. I just want you guys to listen to this. Hold on. Let's put it at the right place. Um, uh, IP address. Okay. Let's see. I'm trying to get to the right point. You guys, you have to listen to this. The FBI ever Hold attempted on. to retrieve data from any electronic device used by... Hold on. We don't care about that. Mm. Wait, no, we do actually. Hold on. Here we go. There we go. Keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. There's a, a piece of legislation that the House passed that would help to do exactly that. And, and, and you sit there, Director Ray, and tell us that you haven't really had a chance in 343 days to even consider whether this is the type of thing that can help protect the lives of the public 
and the lives of those 37,000 men and women who put themselves out there every day to keep us safe. It is, um, it's beyond discouraging. We need to work together on this. We can't be silent on this. Um, I hope that when, uh, when the Senate ultimately is forced to take up a piece of legislation that 90% of the American people uh, believe is the right thing to do, that will help keep us safe and your agents safe, uh, that we'll be able to celebrate that together. And until then, I hope that you'll have the opportunity to dig in to understand that what we did here will help to save the lives of the men and women who work for you. I yield back. General yields back, Mr. Buck. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Director Ray, for 25 years, I was a prosecutor. I worked closely with FBI agents. They are bright, hardworking, dedicated professionals, and it was an honor to work with them. But I'm deeply concerned about revelations concerning corruption uh, in, in the past leadership of the FBI. I'm particularly troubled with the FBI's treatment of investigative journalists like Cheryl Atkinson. When the FBI spies on journalists, it undermines the integrity of our government and it tarnishes the badge. In early 2011, Cheryl Atkinson began reporting on Fast and Furious, where the Obama ATF recklessly allowed illegal gun sales and watched as straw purchasers walked guns across the Mexican border straight into the hands of drug cartels. Atkinson exposed the scandal and the fact that the illegal guns were found at several crime scenes, including where U.S. Border Patrol agent Brian Terry was murdered. For her work on Fast and Furious, Atkinson received an Edward R. Murrow Award, an Emmy Award, and an Investigative Reporting Award. Another Atkinson story involves Solyndra, a solar company involving an Obama donor. Obama Energy Secretary Chu approved more than half a billion dollars in taxpayer loans to Solyndra. Chu ignored Treasury's legal guidance and put the rights of private investors above taxpayer interests. When Solyndra went bankrupt, taxpayers lost $528 million. The administration sought to delay Solyndra's layoff announcement until after the 2010 election. Ms. Atkinson also covered Obama's Benghazi cover-up. Thanks to her, we know Secretary of State Hillary Clinton ignored the warning signs. As allies were withdrawing from Libya, we did not. We know four Americans died waiting in vain for our government to send help. We know Susan Rice, Hillary Clinton, and Bed Rhodes then lied, blaming the attack on a video. Atkinson was nominated for an Emmy for her Benghazi reporting. Director Ray, you and I are public officials. Media criticism comes with a job. Some criticism may be unfair. In fact, much of the criticism may be unfair. But a free press is indispensable to our republic. America is better because of Cheryl Atkinson and investigative journalists. The American people deserve to know the truth about their government, including with respect to Fast and Furious, Solyndra, and Benghazi. So did the Obama administration thank Cheryl Atkinson for her work? Did the White House recognize her for keeping the public informed and holding government accountable? Did President Obama present her with a Presidential Medal of Freedom? No. Using a highly politicized FBI, the administration spied on her. And that's what small-minded people do. Government emails show the Obama White House plotted to silence her stories. After suspicious incidents involving her home internet, computers, and phones, Atkinson hired a forensic computer expert who determined she was hacked by an IP address used by the FBI to conduct domestic surveillance. 
and that spyware proprietary to the federal government and several classified files had been inserted on her computer. CBS News, Ms. Atkinson's employer, undertook a second forensic exam confirming those conclusions. Former government officials, including one from the FBI, later admitted that they took part in this illegal surveillance. When confronted with the facts, Atkinson did what a good investigative journalist does. She sought the truth. As a last resort, she sued DOJ and the FBI in search of justice. Did the FBI come clean and admit what happened? No. They engaged in delay tactics, prompting federal judge James Wynn, an Obama appointee, to write a scathing rebuke of the government's conduct. I am short on time, so I will forward to your office several written questions for response. Basically, I'm interested in knowing whether the FBI was ever directed to obtain information about investigative journalists by the Obama White House, including for purposes of creating or maintaining an enemies list. Has the FBI ever attempted to retrieve data from any electronic device used by Cheryl Atkinson, James Rosen, or any journalist with the Associated Press? In each instance where that occurred, I would like it if the FBI would identify what legal authority such actions took place. That's really important. So they're putting your head on a spike, right? Because uh, you are going against or speaking against the government that is in power. See, a lot of us stayed really, really silent during the Obama regime. We had to be very, very careful. Tiptoeing, tip, 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 tiptoe. That's basically all we could do was tiptoe because we didn't want to be on the list. We didn't want to be put down or go into one of those black prisons, right? And by black means dark and by dark means nobody knows. Well, we know the locations, but whatever. They are losing hard. They're losing so hard that I think Kathy Griffin should be their uh, spokesperson. I think she said it best. And maybe we should listen to those words she said that are really, really, really important that stand for the Democratic Party. I mean, Pelosi put out a statement. She ripped up an official document. And I'll get into that, too. But listen to what is really happening to the Democratic Party. We're hearing the Democrats and the liberals saying this. Listen. I think he I think he I think he. I'm going to be honest, he broke me. He broke me. He broke. he broke me. Let's listen to it again. I'm going to be honest, he broke me. He broke me. He broke. He broke me. He did. He broke them all. Wiped the floor with them. I mean, even the liberal media couldn't find, you know, ways to uh, you know, cover up how the whole world loved President Trump's speech, loved it, absolutely adored it, absolutely couldn't get enough of it because he broke them all and they're all super duper butthurt right now. And so here's where we're going to listen to a song that I remind that this reminded me of the hurting part. So good. So good. Hurts. So good. Right. How many of you remember John Cougar?
I was singing along, you guys. He broke them all. They are going insane. Did you watch the State of the Union? I totally did. I watched every minute of it. I was tweeting live too. Um, that was like my me time yesterday. And I can tell you guys, I mean, uh, Pelosi throughout, you know, from the beginning of the State of the Union address, uh, she was fiddling with the papers. She was fiddling and moving them around and separating them in groups. I guess it's to help her with her arthritis to be able to like cut the papers. So she had this plan. She had planned this. So it was handed over to her. Now, just so you guys understand the way it goes after, you know, addressing Congress and the State of the Union being kicked off in 1919, it's almost ritualistic. So the president provides the original copy, which obviously we have scanned, soft copy, deposited Library of Congress, tons of copies. But there's one original one that he signs, right? The original document that he signs. And on that document is his ink from his hand signed. And he hands that over to Pelosi. Okay. Because then she's supposed to take it and, you know, file it in Congress because it's the official original document. Okay. And so she was taking that document, making it into groups of like two papers, three papers, like pay attention to it. You'll see her fiddling it around, separating it. So that way it's easier for her to actually rip it later. So I knew that they were going to do something. I was just not expecting her to do it. I guess maybe she was trying to find the right time when the camera was on her and how she would do it. And, you know, obviously she was like, oh, I have a manifesto of mistruth. Everything he said was true. There was nothing in there that you could say was false. He's created more jobs. He's boosted our economy. He's give, reinforced our armed services branches, created Space Force. Like you guys watching it, this little girl with her brave single mom raising her, you know, gets a scholarship and they pursed their lips and they were upset. A hundred year old vet, you know, to be, you know, promoted, totally pursed their lips. They were upset. He mentioned, hey, we created the sixth branch of the you know, U.S. Armed Forces. We got Space Force. They were upset. Like everything he did, they were upset because he's done so much and they've done nothing. Like I actually went to see the rebuttal from the Mex from the Mexican, I would say, from the Michigan governor. And uh, that's because I was reading something about the Mexican border. Like I've said, it, sometimes my computer screen looks like one of those, you know, war rooms where I have like 20 windows going at the same time. So I don't miss anything. Um, I'm actually waiting for news in the Eastern Mediterranean. Something's really cooking up there. And um, I don't want to say anything because timing wise, it's two weeks early. So I don't know, man. Um, we'll see. But anyway, I digress. Uh, the Michigan governor, such a fruity person, claimed things that weren't true, said things that weren't true. I mean, but what do we expect from a party of lies, from a party that was broken, broken? She broke she broke yesterday. That was it. She's done. She, 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 he broke her like nobody's business. He broke her completely. And so this is where we're at, you guys. We know that, that they're going down. Nadler made sure to clarify that because he needed to find out like, um, so is this like true? Is this like super true that, you know, there's investigations, Ray? Tell me. I'll tell you what. Pelosi committed 
a crime, an actual crime, especially to the fact that she's a government servant, right? And she's a government employee, nonetheless, a member of the House. So it gets even bigger. I mean, you and I could be charged by destruction of official government documents or defacing them or whatever. You know, you if they find you like messing up a dollar or writing on it, honestly, you can actually get charged with this title. <laughs> title 18, Section 2071. OK, so I, that's how I know it, because I remember someone had said, oh, you can't put, you know, this is where Trump lives on a dollar when I was in the bank because I wanted to like deposit cash notes. So I started writing, this is where Trump lives. You can't put that. That's defacing. You know, you, it's actually a crime. And I was like, just do it in my privacy of my own home and say somebody else did it. Um, but, you know, the Trump lives here. I totally love it because then when they get cashed, they just, ah, you know, they're probably screaming somewhere in some corner of California. But um, that's how I found out about it. So whoever willfully uh, and unlawfully conceals removes, mutilates, obliterates, or destroys, or attempts to do so, or with the intent to do so, takes and carries away any record, proceeding, map, book, paper, document, or other thing filed or deposited with any clerk or offices of any court in the United States or any public office or with any judicial public officer of the United States shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both. Now, whoever having the custody of any such record, proceeding, map, book, document, paper, or other thing, willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys the same, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both, and shall forfeit his office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. As used in this subsection, the term office does not include the office held by any person as a retired officer of the armed forces of the United States. So basically, Pelosi can be removed from her position as Speaker of House. Hello. She can be fined and she can go to jail for three years because what she did is an actual crime on both sections A and B. So here is where we can start pushing on it. Push on the fact, at least remove her from office for doing it. We should never have such disrespect for the president of the United States. I've never seen something so vicious, so vile, so crass, so unclassy. I mean, Rashida, uh, <laughs> Rashida, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm going to say this is so mean. But Rashida, uh, she um, applauded her efforts, so that should tell you everything you need to know. But... This is, this is an actual crime. Like, this is an actual crime. We can remove her from office. We can remove Pelosi from office. That is one of the crime's results, that you get removed from office. That's the most important thing, okay? They can be fined, imprisoned, or both, and shall forfeit and be disqualified from ha holding any office in the United States of America. Hello? Let's remove her. It's time for Pelosi to go. You know, speaking of altering, defacing, manufacturing, messing up, doing whatever documents, uh, you know, I'm really hoping that we got, um, you know, our FBI guys... <laughs> that are being investigated that Nadler discovered today, uh, you know, 
charged with this one too. I mean, you know, you know how when they arrest people, they just like bring a barrage of crimes that they want to charge them with. Like, oh, you didn't hold your pen right. You know, one count of, you know, you weren't wearing the right shoes. I'm just saying, right? Well, why not riddle this one in there? I mean, it's a law. We'll examine more of this right after the break. All right, everyone. Welcome back. I'm, I'm like having super microphone problems today. Uh, nothing's being my friend today. I've I've had a fight with my computer. I've had a fight with my microphone. It's just been such such an odd day. Uh, you know, thinking I have like some momming to do after the show, and you know. <sighs> I feel like a boss whenever I put Ikea furniture together. I'm like, man, I did that. And I've got so much to do so I can feel like a boss. Totally not feeling it. <laughs> and I don't know if a lot of you use apps and stuff, but I was actually thinking of using that TaskRabbit thing because I actually use them a couple times, uh, you know, like Thumbtack. Uh, you can actually hire someone to come and do stuff for you, right? Do stuff for you. Because um, I was thinking, how am I going to put up my TV? But thank God. Goodness, my eldest daughter and myself, you know, now she's, she's over 18, of course, um, like throughout all our, you know, I guess as far as I can remember and as far as Best Buy would offer it, we'd always get that, um, you know, that geek squad thing just so they can like check stuff for us, fix iPhones for us, you know, and stuff like that. But one thing I found out was if I purchase like that thing that you put on the wall, it only cost me 50 bucks for them to send a geek squad person that's totally insured to install it on my wall. And I was like, yeah, that's what's up. So that's like the best $200 in a whole year you can, um, you can buy. And that was renewed in October of 2019 for us. So that was pretty sweet. Um, so yeah, lots of stuff, lots of things happening. And I, I'm not just saying in our personal space, but in the world space. There's so much going on. It seems like everyone's having um, a very clumsy day today. Uh, clumsy, I mean, I'm not just talking like microphone failures for me, but I'm just saying it seems really clumsy today. Clumsy on the fact the way that they're making their speeches. Clumsy on the, the uh, you know, questioning of Ray was so blatant that you're going fishing to find out who's in trouble, right? And what's going on. Clumsy on everything. Like everyone's just clumsy. Um, and... I think the clumsy uh, type, you know, feel came for me this morning when I was um, listening to, um, yeah, listening to, because I'm always so busy doing stuff like, you know, work, typing away, researching away that um, I couldn't see it. But it was Vice President Pence who was live on, uh, on Fox and Friends. And I want you guys to listen to just a few minutes of this in case you missed it, because it was really um, eye-opening. Here we go. President, good morning. Good morning. What was your reaction? Did you realize when she was ripping it up what she was doing? I, I didn't see her do it. I found out just a few moments later, and I think it was a new low. Um, I, I wasn't sure if she was ripping up the speech or ripping up the Constitution. 
I mean, the, you know, it's, it's clear the contrast here was a president who spent an hour and a half making the speech about America. Right. And Nancy Pelosi in the final moments tried to make it about her. And I think the American people see through it. I think they see through the pettiness. They see through the politics of all of it. And uh, I think what they got last night was a speech that lifted up the country, that celebrated the incredible progress that we've made in our economy, rebuilding our military, strengthening our courts. But the stories, the stories that the president told were American stories. And uh, I, I, I just just know it was a great, great uh, blessing to people all across sure. America, and it's uh, one of the reasons uh, why you see the the momentum growing behind this president. And uh, uh, I, I just uh, I just have a strong feeling that uh, uh, she's going to be the last Speaker of the House to to uh, sit in that chair for well, a long time. You know, uh, she. You- when you look at it, given the fact that we've never seen anything like that before, I think yeah. I think some people thought, well, that's kind of a sore loser move. That's like if at the end of the Super Bowl, uh, the the 49ers yeah. took the Lombardi trophy away from the Chiefs and, and spiked it or something like that. You think that she planned to do that all along? Uh, it, it felt like it. It was such an immediate moment. And I, I just don't, get, you know, I've been to a lot of State of the Union addresses uh, as, as a member of Congress. And, and now this was my fourth uh, as a vice president of the United States. And there's always a basic decorum and a basic respect. Uh, but to have her stand up and tear up that speech uh, really dishonored the moment. And, uh, and, and I really thought it was beneath the dignity uh, of, uh, of, of a joint session of Congress, and uh, I think it'll be remembered as such. So what a lot of people said, and in fact, the White House tweeted out, when she ripped up that speech, she ripped up the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, the survival of a child born in 21 weeks, right. the mourning of the family of Rocky Jones, Kayla Mueller, and the service members' reunion with this family. That's what that speech represented. Jody Jones joined us in studio. His brother was a victim of an illegal immigrant, killed him. Listen to what his take was. Right. It felt like she ripped our hearts out. Everybody there, all the guests, we were just, we, we couldn't believe it. Um, look, I don't, I don't care um, how you feel about somebody. Um, that, that was uh, probably the most disrespectful thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, because when she did that, it just tore us up. We couldn't believe it. Well, I, I met I met Jody and the rest of Rocky's family before uh, Karen and I had a few moments with them. The president had time with them. This is a grieving family uh, who lost a loved one at the hands of an illegal immigrant in California, and um, she ripped up Rocky's story. Uh, she ripped up Janae's story. Uh, she ripped up the story about the Williams family and about uh, General McGee and. And I have to tell—I really don't—I I, I don't actually get her take on this. She's now she's saying that she, for it was filled with lies. What what lies were there? I mean, I I I, I watched the president build this speech. Everything about the economy, everything about the military, everything about President Trump's decisive action, taking about al Baghdadi and Qasem Soleimani, every story about Americans, the hopeful, aspirational tone at the end. Um, I, I expect when the dust settles on this speech, it's going to be remembered as one of the best State of the Union addresses How many in you history. You've been to a lot. <laughs> I, I, have you ever seen? I I don't ever remember watching this and seeing people get 
rewards. You had the, the Williams family. He comes right. out of the audience and he surprises his family. What a moment. He's been gone for seven months. Moment. It was what so moment. sweet. The little girl, Jenea, you mentioned her. She lives in a neighborhood where the schools are not good. Right. Her mom is a single mom and wants to give her daughter a better life. And the president looks at her and says, I'm going to give you a scholarship, school choice. You can choose what school you want to go to. And the mom, you can, their reaction to the daughter, so excited because she's going to have a better life now, a better education. Right. Let's take a look at that soundbite. Janiyah's mom, Stephanie, is a single parent. She would do anything to give her daughter a better future. But last year, that future was put further out of reach when Pennsylvania's governor vetoed legislation to expand school choice to 50,000 children. But Janiyah, I have some good news for you, because I am pleased to inform you that your long wait is over. I can proudly announce tonight that an opportunity scholarship has become available. It's going to you, and you will soon be heading to the school of your choice. Was, Look at that. It was so cool because, uh, you know, presidents always talk about what they've done in the past year and what they hope to do the right. next year. But these were these were TV moments that we actually saw. They weren't like, this person did that. We saw the Tuskegee Airmen. We saw her story. Uh, we saw Juan Guaido. And we saw your longtime friend, Rush Limbaugh, who oh. earlier this week, it was revealed, he's got stage four cancer. He's, he's in the fight of his life. Uh, the president did this last night with Rush, and he, Rush did not see this coming. Rush, in recognition of all that you have done for our nation, the millions of people a day that you speak to and that you inspire, and all of the incredible work that you have done for Okay, I'm stopping it because I'm ready to cry again. So that was like a Kleenex moment because like I said, for him to be in stage four, it's metastatic and we might not be hearing from Rush um, for very much longer. And I think what he did to have him walk out um, of the State of the Union with it was incredible. And uh, bringing awards, it's the first time we see it at the State of the Union, uh, because this only demonstrates the, um, the heart of our president and the state uh, of our hearts. So this is the State of the Union the way it should be, where we demonstrate not only with words and actions for the past year, right, of how the nation has become. And for him, it's been just winning, winning, winning. All I could hear while he was speaking was winning, 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 and more winning. That's all I could hear. And all you could see from the Democrats was disdain, hate, upset. Like Pelosi wasn't even looking in the direction. She was looking at the opposite direction. She was looking down. She was separating, like I said, the whole State of the Union speech in batches. So, you know, with her arthritis, that she could like rip it up easier. Uh, she doesn't want to be in the position where she couldn't rip it up. She was planning this from the beginning. That's why she was like shuffling the papers all the time. And so this was a moment of, you know, just, it was, it was a great moment. Um, and, uh, you know, Rush has been a conservative voice. Uh, you know, he says things I don't agree with many times, but that's okay. That is totally okay. But he's been on our airwaves for like forever.
inspiring us to think outside the box and kind of telling us his thoughts because every host has their own thoughts and their own analysis. He was great at analysis, didn't do much investigating. He would just report the news with commentary, right? So he was your typical commentary guy that always gave his flair and his flair spoke to the farmer. His flair spoke to the common worker. His flair spoke to the moms, the teens, you know, that were all about Americana, like Rush Limbaugh actually represents Americana in a way. Um, so, you know, for me, that was like a Kleenex moment. And I think a lot of people cried seeing that because for him, it's um, a feeling of thank you for, you know, seeing me off like this. And that's how I took it. Um, and I pray for him. He's in my prayers. And like I said, it's actually very personal to me because uh, cancer, which is um, a disease that has been around for eons, has only lately in the past, you know, 40 years really taken uh, a really a big uptick on affecting people. And again, like I said, uh, lung cancer is usually, uh, especially when you're late diagnosed, is usually metastatic and very aggressive. So um, yesterday, his State of the Union was incredible, and it was the stamp. It was the stamp. Now, today we have the acquittal coming, and, you know, I'm going to be dead honest with you. It's a it's a 58% chance of acquittal only because I'm seeing some weird narratives, uh, you know, with the algorithms going forward. It's constantly shifting. Uh, this morning it was at um, 72%, uh, went up to 85% acquittal, went down to 43%, and now it's up to 58 So, um, like I said, I don't trust the Senate. Uh, this deep state, this cabal is so far and so deep, it's really hard to determine where it stops and where it starts. Um, I want to say that what we did see yesterday is that a lot of politicians were being stopped by CNN, you know, live for coverage. And a lot of them would just walk right by them. They didn't even want to talk to them. They didn't even want to look at them. They didn't even want to look at them. So um, this is where the world has woken up and the people are now, you know, pushing forward and the people are the ones with the money and the people are the ones that say what goes because this is the United States of America and we do not feel that we should be governed. Instead, we govern. We govern our own selves. And that is the right of the free people, regardless of those in power that, well, in power that we've given them, right? In power that we've given them, believe. That is how it is. In power that we've given them. Remember, these are men and women in the minds of Darwin, Okay, that is where they believe that there is survival of the fit, the, the fittest, and that is the way it should be. Now, we have to understand that their ideas of survival are way different from the ideas you may have of survival and uh, different from my ideas of survival. We only have to think 
what the word survival means to each of us and what we're willing to do to maintain it. We have to understand that. I mean, I know it sounds, um, I mean, that should be a task for all of us. Do we understand, how do we see survival? Like, what are you willing to do to survive? For me, I wasn't willing to kill anyone, ever. Uh, If it was my time, it was my time. I wasn't willing and and still not will. Well, you know, I actually, there is one situation where I was like, all right, I'm going to go to jail, man. I am totally going to jail because I'm going to kill this person uh, for this. So there are, (laughs) there is a circumstance where I have to be truthful and say, yes, I've, I've actually been there, but that wasn't for survival. It was more for, yeah, you don't deserve to live, but, um, survival. How do they survive? How do they poison us? Besides of the words and poisoning our social structures and giving us socialism in small doses. So that way that, that, that in that sense, we just wake up and suddenly we're a socialist, you know, country and, you know, communism is then inevitable. These people just realized yesterday with the state of the union that, that it's over. They're done. It's finished. You can't do anything about it. That we've won. We've, we've won and there's no going back. No matter how many they try, many times they'll try to push forward with new propaganda, new, um, you know, um, articles of impeachment, right? It's, it's not going to stop. It's really not going to stop. Now I wanted to, um, play a clip that was sent to me about someone who said that Speaker Pelosi is amazing and she's on fire. Don't mess with Madam Speaker. She's on fire. Nancy Pelosi rocks. Take a listen. Here she is coming after the State of the Union. Why did you get on this thing more on that? Because it was a manifesto of mistruths. And, and why, what do you think about him not shaking your hand? Mistruths. Would you advise me how to say this again? She said he won't be president nine months from today. Are you sure, Nancy? Because the crime you committed and destruction of an official government document says that you can be disqualified from holding any office and you have to forfeit your office. So why isn't she being forfeited? I want her to be forfeited. She's so self-righteous, isn't she? This is ridiculous, right? How is she still there? Don't worry about it. The best is yet to come. And the president said so himself. The president said so himself. And that's how it moves along. Um, You know, yesterday we had the president of Venezuela at the State of the Union, which was Wow. You know, Guaido was there and he's the interim president of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. And that was incredible. I don't think we've had another president attend a State of the Union. I don't think so. 
uh, which is pretty interesting uh, and very, I would say, novel, right? To have, you know, here's your soldier back home because we be- we love our military. Here's a scholarship, young lady, because we believe that every child should have the opportunity to go to a good school. Um, you know, here's uh, a medal of freedom because you've provided so much to the people of the United States. Unlike De Niro, who's nothing but a loser and, you know, was kicked out of the Navy for smoking pot, you know, uh, you know, he got one. Oprah Winfrey did for what? Praying, fasting, being the best person at losing and gaining weight real quick. And, you know, what? Why did she get it? Why? Clinton, what? For what? Raping women? Like, tell me. This guy actually provided something to the people. Uh, the State of the Union yesterday was it was was incredible for us patriots to watch because it was it was all filled with truths. It was filled with pride, right? I was so proud that my president did all that. it, It made us feel like, hey, we are where we need to be right now. We need to be where we are. And so that's, um, that's, that's very, very interesting. That's a, that's an odd feeling because historically, either, you know, even now or looking back in the history, I know, um, this was unprecedented and, uh, we haven't seen something like this before. Um, so what do we expect? We've got a few minutes left in the show. What do we expect? acquittals in the air. I know a lot of us are ready for it. I I know I'm ready for it. I made a little nice graphic for it. But acquittal is what we wish. Acquittal is one of is one of many timelines. All the other ones don't have acquittals. So you would say the odds are less, but in actual fact um with today's um I would say with today's news cycles and the spirit and what we feel around us today is different. I feel like all of America right now is um, is on a high, uh, feeling great about what's going on. I mean, right now we have a bunch of clowns uh, that, you know, can't seem to... Um, manage the Iowa caucus, let alone... Uh, <laughs> Let alone can these clowns run a nation. They're done. It's over. And it's all coming to where it needs to be full circle. That's where it's coming to. Full circle. Full circle. Exposés. You know, bottom line is they're not arguing. They're just lying to us. Right. And, 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 and I've said this before, the best way to take down your enemy is to not interrupt them while they're destroying themselves. And that president Trump wants them to pull their own pants down. And this is exactly what we've been seeing. This after today is where everything happens. Nadler let you know, he let you know exactly what they're expecting. By the questions he asked Director Ray today, he let you know where and what they are worried about and how and when it's going to happen. And guess when it's happening now. Now, it would be nice if we threw in this Pelosi charge for ripping up the document. But I hope that 
that, hold on, I hope that I got it right. Um, Mr. Liu asked a question. Hold on. Let me play this quick. If or ultimately side, we have tried to push out to state and local election officials and campaigns uh, indicators to be on the lookout for uh, so that they're more likely to, if they spot something, think, wait a minute, this might be something I should contact FBI or law enforcement about. And then on the engagement side, we've tried to do things, including we've created a Protected Voices website that puts out information to campaigns all over the country about cyber hygiene to better protect their, not necessarily election infrastructure, but the campaign uh, infrastructure, if you will, from cyber attacks. Thank you. So the second component, which I think could have even more of an influence on elections, is disinformation. Um, PSYOP operations. And as you know, uh, the Mullen investigation, uh, special counsel indicted a Russian troll farm. Uh, so what steps are FBI doing to uh, try to mitigate uh, disinformation in the upcoming election? So I think you're right that in some ways that's an even more challenging area, uh, not the least because it never stopped, right? It happened in 2016 and it's been continuing ever since then. It may have an uptick during an election cycle, but it's a 24-7, 365 days a year threat. Second reason it's challenging is that unlike a cyber attack on an election uh, infrastructure, that kind of effort, disinformation, uh, in a world where we have a First Amendment and, and believe strongly in freedom of expression, the FBI is not going to be in the business of being the truth police and monitoring disinformation online. So it requires not just the investigations when we do get leads that we can pursue, uh, but also um, engagement with the social media companies in particular. Uh, and that's one of the places where there have been great strides since 2016 uh, where we have made, and we saw it in the midterms, a lot better engagement with the social media companies where there are things that they can do as private companies voluntarily based on their own terms of use or terms of service where they can use the resources they have to find and shut down accounts and sort of nip some of these things in the bud. So I th Wait a minute. So what are they talking about? Free speech or are they talking about crimes? Yeah, Comey got that. That's what happened. That is exactly what happened. Comey got that done. So just so you understand what he is saying, he's saying that we have now started working with these social media companies and they're helping us. And we've seen that from 2016, i.e. Comey. And we're going to be working on this, um, but we're not going to be policing. I'll see you tomorrow. God bless.